He is a proven master of spinning delicious, many-layered mysteries that also happen to be true. That's Dave Eggers on David Grant. And The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder, is confirmation yet again of David's prodigious talent, like he did in Killers of the Flower Moon and The Lost City of Z. David's taken a story that, while not unknown, is not known enough, and he brings it to life in all its exoticism and savagery. David Grant is my guest on this episode of The Literary Life, and his talk was recorded at Books and Books in Carl Gables, Florida, in front of a live audience. Uh, One day, several years ago, I found myself on a small wood-heated boat off the Chilean coast of Patagonia, entering what is known as the Gulf of Sorrows, or as some prefer to call it, the Gulf of Pain, which should have told me everything I needed to know. Uh, It was freezing, and um, it was freezing winter, and we were caught in a storm with towering waves that dwarfed the boat in front of me. All I could see was a mountain of water behind me. All I could see was another mountain of water. Um, And the boat had a captain and two crew members. And uh, we were being tossed about so violently that I had to just sit on the floor. I could not stand or I might break a limb. Um, And if you think I am exaggerating, I have a little video, which will hopefully play um, of, let's see if that works, of what it was like on our little boat. And... As you can probably tell, I'm not much of an adventurer, uh, and I had taken every possible remedy to stave off seasickness. I was like a laboratory for medicines. I had, you know, one of those patches behind my ear and some mysterious band that they sell at four in the morning on TV around my wrist, and I was drunk on Dramamine. Um, And I felt increasingly nauseous as these objects, a jacket, a bilge pump, flew past me. We had not seen another boat or a soul for nearly a week, and I kept glancing out the porthole, hoping to glimpse a sign of that place, that desolate place that had consumed my imagination, Wager Island. On that deserted island had unfolded one of the most extraordinary and gripping sagas I had ever heard of. One that had influenced philosophers like Rousseau and Voltaire, scientists like Charles Darwin, and two of the great novelists of the sea, Herman Melville and, indeed, Patrick O'Brien. It was also a tale that seemed like a parable for our own turbulent times. Yet as the boat rolled further and further over, the sea swallowing the deck, I began to wonder what you're probably wondering now. What the hell was I doing in the Gulf of Pain? And the story begins, believe it or not, all the way back in 1742. It was then that a small little boat washed ashore off the coast of Brazil. 30 men were crammed on board, their bodies almost wasted to the bone. They were so weak that most of them could not even stand, but one rose with an extraordinary exertion of will, their leader, and he announced that they were the survivors of his majesty's ship, the wager, and they had been shipwrecked on a desolate island for months. And after building this flimsy craft, they had traveled 
nearly 3,000 miles, one of the longest castaway voyages ever recorded in maritime history. And they were healed for their ingenuity and their bravery. But a few months later, another little boat washed ashore. This one on the other side of South America, on the Chilean coast of Patagonia. This boat was even smaller and more battered, and crammed on board were just three men, one of whom was so delirious he could not even recollect his own name. Yet as they began to recover, they eventually told a very different story, and they leveled a shocking allegation that those men who had preceded them and gone to Brazil were not actually heroes. In fact, they were mutineers. And it soon became clear with charges and countercharges flying back and forth from both groups that while stranded on that desolate island, they had gradually descended into a real-life Lord of the Flies with warring factions and abandonments and mutinies. Back in England, the principal figures from each faction was summoned to face a court-martial for their alleged crimes on the island. And after everything they had been through, they could now suddenly face the prospect of being hanged. And so hoping to save their lives and to influence public opinion and the opinion of the Admiralty, many of them released their testimony and accounts, which sparked a furious war over the truth. Um, Joan Didion famously said, we all tell ourselves stories in order to live. Yet in their case, it was quite literally true, because if they, didn't get a, uh, if they did not tell a convincing tale, they might be hanged. The men had once hoped to return from the expedition bathed in glory after an imperial war had broken out between Great Britain and its rival Spain in 1739. The wagers officers and crew had received secret orders to head out with this squadron to try to capture a Spanish galleon filled with so much treasure it was known as the prize of all the oceans. And believe it or not, that was part of the war mission. It had a real whiff of piracy about it. And the seamen were offered a tantalizing prospect, a share in any treasure they captured. But first the wager and the four warships, other warships that were in the squadron, including the Centurion, which was under the command of the expedition's leader, George Anson, they had to get out of the dockyards in England, a task that was proving insurmountable. These warships were the engineering marvels of their time. They were devised to be both the murderous instruments for battle, but also the homes in which hundreds of sailors would live side by side together in close quarters in a, as a family. The wager was 123 feet long and had rows of cannons on each side and three towering masts. Of all the warships, the wager was the smallest and it was considered a little bit the ugly duckling of the squadron because it had not been born for battle. It had been remade um, into a warship from a merchant ship uh, in preparation for this mission. But even so, it could fly more than a dozen sails. And here in some of these images, you'll get 
just a little bit of a sense of what it was like on deck on these warships with the cannons. The men would sleep on their hammocks, uh, separated by only about a foot, right between the ham, uh, right between the cannons. And of course, in a jostling sea, their elbows and knees would collide. They would mess between the cannons as well. Yet, as sophisticated as these machines were. They were made mostly of perishable wood. A single warship, and this is one of those astonishing facts you come across, could take as many as 4,000 trees to build. I found a, a letter and an account complaining of deforestation. Uh, they didn't use that term, but of a forest uh, being lost at the time. Um, and the wood uh, was susceptible most of these, you know, because so much was made of wood, it was susceptible to the elements of wind and, so and storm. You know, worms would burrow under the hull, termites would eat them, rats would gnaw at the ropes and the sails and the provisions. And the squadron was laid up at the dockyard on what was known as Rotten Row, um, waiting to be repaired for the voyage. Given that the expedition could last as long as three years, each ship also needed to be loaded with countless tons and tons and tons of provisions. A single warship uh, would require some 40 miles of rope, more than 15,000 square feet of sails, and a farm's worth of livestock, including pigs and goats and cattle, which were very uncooperative in trying to get on board these ships. Most importantly, it would require nearly 2,000 skilled seamen and crew to operate all these ships in the squadron. The wager would need some 250 men, which was nearly double the number it was designed for. So they were going to be really packed together. But the Navy had exhausted its supply of volunteers. And so what did they do? They sent out the press gangs. And these press gangs would wander into towns and ports and cities, and they would eyeball you. And if they saw any telltale signs that you were a mariner, if you had the round hat or a checkered shirt, or even if they saw a little bit of tar on your fingertips, tar was used on ships to make everything water resistant. They would say, you're a mariner. They would seize you, grab you, and in effect kidnap you, put you on a little ship that was like a jail and take you out to these warships and you would be uh, sent unwillingly on this expedition. And the squadron was still short of men that the Admiralty took the extreme measure of rounding up soldiers from a retirement home. <laughs> these men were in their 60s and 70s Many of them were missing an assortment of limbs, and some were so sick they had to be lifted onto stretchers uh, onto uh, the ship. So you could see the seeds of destruction were sown early on. One of the things that makes life on these ships so fascinating is that they were like an experiment to test the bounds of human sociability. Strangers from all walks of life some as young as six years old, there were boys that were sent to sail. And on the wager, the cook was in his 80s. They came from every profession. You would have uh, aristocrats who would be officers. You would have dandies. 
You would have city paupers. You had free black seamen. You had professional craftsmen all thrown together. Um, there's a great quote I just wanted to read you um, from a seaman. It said, a man of war may justly be styled an epitome of the world in which there is a sample of every character, some good men as well as bad. Among the latter, he noted, were highwaymen, burglars, pickpockets, debauchers, adulterers, gamesters, lampooners, bastard-getters, imposters, panders, parasites, ruffians, hypocrites, and my favorite, thread-worn bow jack-a-dandies. The British Navy was known for its ability to coalesce these fractious individuals into a band of brothers, what's what the phrase used by Vice Admiral Nelson. But on the wager, the challenge was enormous given how many of the men were taken unwillingly, how many were pressed, and also how many of them were sick. By September of 1740, nearly a year had gone by since the start of the war, and still the wager and the other ships in the squadron were marooned at the dockyards. But finally, on September 18th, the squadron, along with two small cargo vessels, which were going to accompany them part way, set off on the perilous voyage. And this is kind of remarkable because this is a painting uh, done by a lieutenant who is actually a part of the expedition. You can actually see the ships now uh, in the squadron as they set off, and you can see the wager there marked. Now, the book focuses on competing accounts of three men on board the wager. We all impose some coherence, some meaning on the chaotic events of our existence. We rummage through the raw images of our memories, selecting, burnishing, erasing. And I organized the book this way um, to show how each of these men tried to shape history, hoping to emerge as the hero of the story. One perspective is that of David Cheap, who was recently promoted to captain of the wager a burly Scotsman in his 40s with an explosive uh, temperament and obsessive dreams of glory. He had been plagued by debts and chased by creditors back in England. But he always found refuge in the regimented wooden world of a ship. And on this voyage, he had finally obtained what he had always longed for, which was a chance to captain his own warship and to possibly capture a lucrative prize. The second perspective is that of the wager's gunner, John Bulkley. We don't know what John Bulkley looked like um, because he came from the lower to middle class. He could not afford to have had a portrait made of him. But we know his thoughts intimately because he was very literate and he was a compulsive diarist. He was considered the most skilled seaman on the wager and an instinctive leader. Yet because he did not come from the aristocracy, he knew that he would never become a commander or a captain of a warship. And the third point of view comes from John Byron, a midshipman who was only 16 years old when the voyage began. He came from the nobility, and later he became the grandfather of the poet Lord Byron, whose poetry, including Don June, is greatly influenced by what he referred to as my, great, uh, my granddad's narrative. Many, unlike many of the men on the voyage, he was not pressed. He did not go unwillingly. He had actually volunteered for the mission. 
Um, he was enraptured by Tales of the Sea. And this book is a story not only about the stories we tell and shape, but also how stories shape us. And he was very shaped by all these romantic adventure tales he had read, including Robinson Crusoe. Um, and he is in many ways, he's training to become an officer on the ship. And in many ways, he is our eyes and ears onto this bewildering world. He must master as he trains uh, a whole new way of life, learn about seamanship, including learning a, a whole new kind of coded language because everything on a ship had a different name. Even objects on land had a different name on a ship. You wouldn't call it a privy, you'd call it a head, for example. Um, and it was only working on this book that I became aware of how many of our idioms actually derived from the age of sail. For example, scuttlebutt. Does anyone know where scuttlebutt comes from? Scuttlebutt was a barrel on a ship in the center of the ship where seamen would gather to get their water rations. And what would they do around it? Gossip. Piping hot, the bosun's whistle for a hot meal. Pipe down, the bosun's whistle to be quiet at night. Under the weather. That's a crazy one. I always thought it was just kind of a metaphor for sickness. No. When seamen were sick, they didn't actually serve on deck, on watch. They were actually kept below. So they were quite literally under the weather. And my favorite of all these nautical phrases was to turn a blind eye, which derived a little bit later in the century when uh, Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson wanted to ignore his signal officer's flag to retreat. So what did he do? He took his telescope and he put it up to his blind eye. He had a blind eye. So that's why we say to turn a blind eye. Um, and one day early in the voyage, Byron heard that petrifying order eventually given to every midshipman, aloft you go. And they suddenly had to climb one of the masts. Because in those days, you had to climb the mast to work sails or to keep watch. And he had to take and climb the ropes from outside, the, the ropes that held up the masts, the shrouds and the various rope lines, scurrying up this. Those masts were often more than 100 feet. And they were actually three masts, three sticks on top of each other. Uh, and it's sometimes when you were climbing, your back was nearly parallel to the deck uh, as you climbed. And uh, as he gets to the top, he can look out and he can see the other ships in the squadron. And beyond them is the sea, a blank expanse on which he was ready to write his own romantic story. But soon everything went wrong. Um, as the squadron crossed the Atlantic, it found itself being chased by a more powerful Spanish armada. Here you can actually see a depiction of a battle that happens later of the Centurion, which was the flagship battling a Spanish ship. You could see the holes in the sails. Um, then they faced an even greater threat, the seas around Cape Horn at the southernmost tip of the Americas. Because these far southern seas are the only waters that flow uninterrupted around the globe on the earth, unimpeded by any land. They accumulate power over as much as 13,000 miles. These Cape Horn rollers or waves can dwarf a 90-foot mast. There are the strongest currents on earth, and then there are the winds, which often accelerate to a hurricane force and can even reach 
200 miles per hour. Herman Melville, who later rounded the horn, joining that very rare and elite club, compared it to a descent into hell and Dante's inferno. And as the squadron tried to round the horn, they were battered by storms day and night. The boy, John Byron, would stare in awe at the waves that broke over the wager, banding it about as if it were no more than a rowboat. Water seeped through virtually every seam in the hull, flooding the lower decks. The temperature kept dropping until the rains hardened into sleet and snow. Cables became encrusted with ice, and some of the men succumbed to frostbite. There's a seaman's adage that says, below 40 degrees latitude, there is no law. Below 50 degrees, there is no God. And they were now in what was known as the Furious 50s. Um, Captain Cheap uh, and the other commander knew they would need every man to work the ships if they were to persevere. But many of the crew could no longer rise from their hammocks, suffering from a mysterious illness. Their eyes bulged, their hair fell out, so did their teeth. Even the cartilage that glued together their bodies seemed to be coming undone. There was one man who had fallen in a battle 50 years earlier, and he had broken his bone in that battle, and of course it had healed over five decades, and suddenly, mysteriously, it shatters in the exact same place. And it also affected their senses. One seaman said, the disease got into our brains, and we went raving mad. They were suffering from the great enigma of the Age of Seal, which was scurvy. The disease killed more mariners than all the other threats, including gun battles, other uh, diseases, um, and shipwrecks combined. No one then knew that it was brought on by a deficiency of vitamin C and that the cure was so simple. They just needed a little more fruit and vegetables. You know, they didn't have refrigeration in those days, so they didn't bring fruit and vegetables on the ships. And in this case, the squadron actually stopped in Brazil before they rounded the horn. They stopped on an island, and there were all these limes. The cure was right within the reach. And of course, several decades later, once scurvy is understood, what did British seamen do? They brought limes, which is why we use the phrase limeys. British seamen were known as limeys, because they carried limes. Um, and hundreds and hundreds of men in the squadron perished their bodies tossed overboard unceremoniously, unceremoniously, as the poet Lord Byron would later put it, without a grave, uncoffined, and unknown. Cheap and the other uh, captains were increasingly running out of hands to operate their ships. Some could not even raise a sail. And even when they raised the sails, they would blow out in the storm. And there's one unbelievable um, a description um, in one of the logbooks describing how they had no sails and they couldn't fly their sails, so the ship was lurching crazily. The masts were literally, the booms on the masts, these yard arms that go across, were literally touching the water. It's like a total pendulum as they rocked back and forth. But because they couldn't control the ships without, without sails, they ordered several of the top men to climb the masts and to use their bodies as sails. And so they stood on these yard arms, sometimes 100 feet in the air, holding on like spiders to the ropes, their bodies concave as the gale blew against them. 
And the tactic actually did work and allow the captain to maneuver the ship at least a little bit and to keep it at least away from the coast and the rocks. But one man was thrown overboard, and when you read the book, uh, he drowned, and it led to a very famous British poem about it. Um, now, the commanders and the ships were all desperate to stay close together as they rounded the horn because they knew if something happened to one of the ships and they were alone, there would be no one to rescue them. Now, this was a day where you didn't have, uh, you know, uh, your, your uh, you know, uh, radios to communicate or certainly didn't have an iPhone. And so how did they communicate? They would fire their guns to signal the location. They would do this desperately, frantically, over and over again. But the winds drowned out the booming sounds of the guns, and soon all the ships scattered around the horn. And the wager found itself all alone with its new commander, left to its own destiny. And Cheat wanted to prove himself as this heroic captain he had always imagined himself to be. And he was determined to reach an area off Chile where Anson had advised they should rendezvous if they ever separated. And he managed quite skillfully to guide the ship around the horn, joining that club, that elite club. Um, but all sailors at that time, like Cheap and his uh, navigators, they had no way to know exactly where they were on the map. They were sailing partially blind. Why was that? Well, they could determine their latitude by reading the stars. It was pretty easy to do, and it had been done for centuries. But they had no way of knowing their longitude um, because that would require to be measured a reliable clock, and they had not yet been invented. So they had to rely on what was called very appropriately, with a very appropriate name, dead reckoning, which, to simplify, essentially amounted to informed guesswork and a leap of faith. And Cheap and his navigators' estimation of their longitude as they were coming up the, up the coast of Chile turned out to be not only wrong, but wrong by hundreds and hundreds of miles. They suddenly found themselves trapped in El Golfo de Penas, as it's now called, this Gulf of Sorrows, or the Gulf of Pain, and they hit a submerged rock. And the rudder shattered, and a two-ton anchor jostled and fell and broke free, and it fell through the bottom of the ship, leaving a gaping hole. And then another mountainous wave comes, and it sweeps the wager off these rocks. The ship, their home, their fortress, back then most seamen could not swim, is suddenly careening through this minefield of rocks without a rudder with water pouring into the ship until finally it crashes into another cluster of rocks and begins to completely rip apart. The decks cave in, the planks shatter, the masts come down, water surges upward from the bottom of the ship, rats scurry upward. Those who had been suffering from scurvy, many of whom had been in their hammocks for months and months, who were too sick to get out, drowned. But the ship miraculously did not completely sink. It became wedged between these pillar of rocks, and so it did not sink at least yet. And some of the survivors, including Byron, including Buckley, they climb up onto the ruins of their ship and their home, and they peer out in the distance, and through the mist, they see a desolate island. And of course, that's where the real hell began.
about 145 of them uh, make it ashore being ferried in a little rowboat, basically, a transport boat, uh, including Cheap, Captain Cheap, the Gunner Buckley, and the Midshipman Byron. Um, but that, and they hope, well, maybe this could be our salvation, but the island turns out to be completely inhospitable. It's cold, wet, windswept, barren. Um, it's always raining or sleeting. The temperature's hovering around 30 degrees. And worst of all, they can find virtually no food. They found, you know, they could eat some seaweed. They found some mussels, but they quickly exhausted them. They did find a little bit of celery, which actually um, had the one real benefit, which because it cured their scurvy, though they had no idea why. It had some vitamin C in it. Um, but that was about it. There were, there were no animals other than the birds that would kind of fly in the distance. Uh, one uh, British captain described the island as a place where the soul of man dies in him. And with no seeming way off the island and facing hypothermia and starvation, the real tests of their characters and their wits began. Because most of you have yet to read the book, I won't spoil the unfathomable saga that ensued. But what is so interesting is that island became, in many ways, a perfect laboratory to test the human condition under extreme conditions, extreme circumstances. And inevitably, it begins to peel the way, peel it away, um, until it reveals each person's secret nature, his hidden nature, both the good and the bad. Captain Cheap had initially tried uh, to establish an imperial outpost on the island. And he believed the only way they could stay and survive and ever get off the island was if they operated the way they had operated on the ship. He was their captain because he had been the captain on the ship. And they were going to be governed by the same naval rules and order. But gradually, as more of them are starving, they gradually descend into warring factions and murderous anarchy. What is remarkable is that even in this state of nature, the castaways held these fierce philosophical debates about the nature of leadership and loyalty and patriotism and duty. Should a captain like Cheap remain their commander because he was a commander at sea? Or in this democracy of suffering, could the gunner John Buckley though he did not come from the aristocracy, eventually emerged as commander in his own right. Now, at one point, they were visited uh, by a group of native Patagonians who were known as the Carasquar. And along with several other indigenous groups uh, in Patagonia, the Carasquar had settled in the region thousands of years earlier. They generally traveled in very small familial groups. They spent much of their time in canoes because they knew how inhospitable the land and the coastline was and how hard it was to find food. And so they survived almost exclusively off marine resources. They were known and often called the nomads of the sea. And over the centuries, they had adapted to this harsh environment. In fact, NASA would later study them when it was preparing uh, its flights into space to see how they had adopted to such inhospitable uh, conditions. Um, they kept warm by always keeping a fire going, even in their canoes. Um, 
and they knew where to find hidden schools of fish and reefs laden with edible sea urchins and mussels, which generously went and brought back to the starving castaways. But the growing chaos and violence among the men of the wager eventually drives the Carasquar uh, away. Eventually, they're just like, we're out of here. <laughs> and um, they take one look at these hairy, white castaways and like, we've seen enough. And, uh, and also, they're mistreated in part um, because of um, you know, prejudice and racism at the time that was very prevalent. Um, and so the castaways lose a potential lifeline and after their, uh, the Carasquare's departure, the castaways fall further and further uh, into a Hobbesian state of depravity. Here you can see some engravings of the violence. A few of the men succumb to cannibalism. Now, incredibly, some members of each faction did eventually make it back to England. And I describe these in the book, and each of these journeys are a saga unto themselves. I mean, some of them were packed in one little boat so tightly they could barely move, they could barely stand, they had no provisions, um, and they traveled, you know, thousands of miles. Um, but when they get back to England, as they feared, um, they are hauled before a military tribunal where they face the prospect of being hanged for their alleged crimes. And so after waging a war against the elements for so long, they now begin to wage this war over the truth. Um, and what was so amazing is I was doing this research. I was going to these archives at the time and pulling out these blog books and diaries and journals from the 18th century, brittle and covered in dust. And, um, and I would be reading about misinformation and disinformation, and there were allegations of fake journals. And then I would come home to my uh, uh, house, and I'd flip on the news or read the paper, and I'd be like, you know, what is truth and alternative facts? And, you know, what can we believe? I was like, God, this is crazy. Um, and uh, uh, there was also a massive struggle over which version of history would prevail. And there were efforts by those in power to cover up the scandalous truth, to manufacture an alternative history. So this book is not only a meditation about truth and the stories we tell each other and the stories we shape, shape for ourselves, but just as individuals shape stories to serve their self-interest, so do nations. And you'll really see how that happens in this case. Um, now, when I first began uh, researching um, the wager of fear, I ventured only to the places most suited for my uh, very strong physical attributes, which was uh, basically in the archives in England, um, where there is a surprising trove of primary materials that somehow survived. Some of them went all around the world. They survived the tidal wave. Some survived a shipwreck. Um, uh, and, and these documents um, allow you to really recreate so much in a meticulous way, almost day to day. And one day I retrieved a muster book from one of the ships in the squadron. And the pages were so brittle I had to turn them using a slip of paper. And I noticed on one of the pages next to a crew member's name, the letters DD. 
it took me a long time to kind of familiarize myself and learn how to read these documents. Um, but I, and eventually, at first, these muster books look like gibberish to me. Essentially, it's just a, 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 when a seaman or an officer comes on board a ship, their name is listed in the muster, their rank, and when they arrive. But next to their names are also an abbreviation with just some initials. And at first, I was like, well, I had no idea what they meant. But I eventually learned that DD meant discharged dead. So it meant they had died on the voyage. Um, and as I scrolled down, I saw the same two letters scribbled next to one name after another. And the same was true of the other muster books from ships in the squadron. And so documents can speak in startling ways. And these kind of, the muster books, which seem very anodyne and kind of like gibberish to me, really held the clues to the extraordinary toll that this voyage had taken. It kind of let you peel beneath the myth of nearly 2,000 men who had set sail on the expedition, more than 1,300 perished, a shocking death rate even for a voyage of this nature. Um, but after a couple years of combing through these various archives, I feared that I could never fully grasp what the castaways had experienced on the island. And it was then that I decided to do something rather foolish, was to try to launch my own little expedition to Wager Island. Um, I don't describe this in the book, but I'll describe it for you. And it breathes life into so much of what I wrote. Um, so I found a Chilean captain uh, who could take me on his boat from Chiloé Island, which is about 350 miles north of Wager Island. And... Um, uh, he had sent me a photograph of this boat. And, you know, in the pictures, it looked really big. I was like, I got this. This is great. And then when I got there, it took me days and days and days to get this island. I had to fly, take a, another flight, and take a car and a ferry, and eventually get to the boat. And when I take one look at it, I was like, uh, wow, that's pretty small. Um, yeah, that's my little boat. <laughs> uh, that's me getting ready for Chiloé Island. Uh, we were going to travel about 350 miles uh, south um, uh, to Wager Island. Um, we were supposed to depart right away, um, but uh, it, the storms were so violent that the Coast Guard had blocked off the port and they would not let any ships leave. So one day passed, and then another day passed, and a third day passed. I was like, oh my God, I have a return flight eventually. I'm getting nervous. Uh, um, but eventually we were able to set sail. We slipped out at dawn. We got across this gulf. The seas were pretty rough, but it didn't last too long. And we suddenly entered into these, um, we suddenly entered into uh, these channels. And oh, that's my cabin. <laughs> uh, and we eventually entered into these channels. Um, and the channels for, how many people here have been to Patagonia? Okay, so you know, I had never been to Patagonia. So these channels, it's like there's so many fractured little islands. It's like someone shattered like a, a plate and they're just fractured out. So you can kind of wind between all of these islands that are very sheltered. Um, and it was, they're really chillingly beautiful. I mean, for days we didn't see another soul. We didn't see another boat. This is where we were going is extremely remote. Um, but I was like, oh, I got this. This is great. No problem. And um, uh, we would have to stop. Yeah, we would have to stop along the islands, and the captain would climb onto one of the islands on the coast, and he would chop down wood because the boat was heated by a wood stove. And that was how we stayed warm. It was winter time, it was about 30 degrees out. 
And he would also, the way we would get water and supplies, would he, when we stopped, he would run a hose up to these glacial streams. And that's how we got water onto our boat for our voyage. Uh, and so we would have something to drink. It was too cold to bathe, and the bilge pump broke. And so there was no bathing. Sorry. Um, uh, but eventually, after several days, the captain came to me and he said, well... Now we're going to have to go out into the seas if we're going to get to Wager Island. And so we head out into the Pacific. Uh, and that was my first glimpse uh, of these very terrifying seas. And again, just a little reminder for you. Um, and again, I just had to sit down. Uh, I couldn't move. I had to pass. You couldn't eat because, you, you know, there's no cooking or anything. You, you know. So you just sat down. I had to pass the time. So what did I do? I put on a recording of Moby Dick, <laughs> which in hindsight was not the smartest thing to have done and was not very soothing. Um, but our captain really was extraordinarily uh, skilled, and he managed to lead us into the Gulf of Pain. And maps of the Gulf contain these references that are baffling to most contemporary seamen. Um, near the northernmost headlands, our captain pointed to several islands, which he identified by these curiously English-sounding names, uh, such as Smith and Hobbs. Uh, oh, is this one Waller? Good. And Waller. And um, I was like, that, those names sound really familiar to me. And I had brought the journals with me from some of the castaways, reprints and stuff and copies. And I looked at them and I was like, oh my god, those names. Those are the names of four castaways who, when they were trying with a group to flee the island, they had two small castaway boats and one sank. So there wasn't enough room for these four men. And they were abandoned on these islands. And this is their epitaph. Each of these islands is named after them, though most people today, because the wager of fear is completely forgotten, have no idea why. History shapes the present even when we are oblivious to why. Um, and eventually we reached Wager Island and um, we took a little uh, Zodiac uh, to the island to get on board uh, at dawn one morning. And the island remains a place of wild desolations. Its shores are still battered by unrelenting winds and waves. The trees are all bent at about 45 degrees angles. They look as if the, the trees are lying on top of each other. Or I always thought they looked a little bit like hurtling sprinters, you know, when they're in the air. Um, and it's really hard to walk uh, on the island. Um, and the castaways had described that. And a really unflattering picture of me as I head to the island. And I include it not just to embarrass myself, but also just to, because to show you how bundled up I was. And it was in making this trip where I had all these layers on, wool hat, long johns, you name it, but I was still cold. And originally when I had read their accounts, I was like, well, I looked at the weather gauges down there. I was like, well, it was around 30 degrees, could be 40 degrees. I was like, why is this? How cold is that? But it is cold because it's always windy. It's always wet. It rained or sleet the whole time we were there. And so I realized when they kept describing their accounts that they were freezing, that they were no doubt all suffering from hypothermia, though they would not have used that term. And they also described how hard it was to walk. And indeed it is when we got to the island, 
uh, you can't really walk because the foil, first of all, it's very mountainous. And then where there's foliage, it's just so dense. It's like trying to push through a hedge. And after like 25 yards, you just give up. You can walk along the little shores, but the shores are very short because then the mountains come down and descend all the way into the water. Um, and we explored the area where the castaways had their encampment. And we found some of the celery like they had eaten. Um, and then at a nearby icy stream, a member of our team pointed to uh, the water and said, look. And just beneath the surface of the water, we could see some wooden planks, these timbers that were about five yards long. They were held together with wooden nails. And um, they are from an 18th century warship believed to be his majesty's ship, the Wager. They had first been discovered, and we, this is why we knew what they were, they had first been discovered by a scientific expedition that was led by both British and Chileans, uh, several, about a decade, decade earlier, something like that. Uh, so we knew what they were. And my trip to the island had two really profound impacts on me. One, I could now understand why that officer had said the soul of man could die in him. My soul would have died in me. But also looking at these remnants of the ship, that was all that remained, nothing else. And after all these years and the years after, I would spend you know, researching about this furious struggle that took place there. There were no more evidence of it or of these ravaging dreams of empire. And the only sound I could hear was the eternal hush of the sea. So that's the wager in a nutshell, so I don't spoil too much. <laughs> <laughs>